Uncensored. Unfiltered. Unhinged. It's the Corelcast. Listen daily on your favorite streaming service. <laughs> Sorry, I'm It is the Corelcast. I am Corel. I've already cracked myself up on this Friday. So glad you're joining <laughs> I'm glad you're joining me. We know everyone's getting in this Christmas thing, and I was thinking of a carol, Joy to the World. And I thought, you know, if God came back, would he? it'd be problematic because he'd be walking around singing, Joy to the world, I finally come. And that just that wouldn't be a, you know, <laughs> could be an issue. Singing, Joy to the world, I finally come. I hope to sing that one day as well. But I mean, if the Lord came back and we're singing Joy to the World in a choir, he would have to change the lyrics and that's what they would be. And so that's, that'd be problematic. Uh, anyway, so very glad you are joining me. We are got a special show for you today. Uh, later on in the show, I am going to uh, play for you the audio for those of you that do not watch my YouTube videos, and there are thousands of you who do not watch them, uh, but listen to the show. I know, I see the numbers. Uh, you don't get number 95 in Canada without, you know, people listening to your show on iTunes. Uh, so, you know, you're not watching at youtube.com forward slash really Carell. You're not subscribing. I don't know why, but you're not. I wish you would. Please do. I can't force you. But it would really help me if you would subscribe at youtube.com forward slash really Carell. Is it the name? Can you just not spell it? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, so anyway, so I'm going to play the audio for A Story in Every Bottle. And it's such a good show. It's such a good concept for a show. And it's such a good story. Uh, and I'm so proud of the work I've done on it that I want to share it with you today. Uh, and you're going to learn so much. You're going to, your mouth is going to fall open when you really find out what prohibition was about, why we stopped selling alcohol in this country. And then when you relate it to marijuana, you're going to see the total similarity and be like, oh my God, you mean marijuana prohibition is really about racism? Yes. <laughs> oh, anyway, so that's all going to be revealed as we follow a grandson from Las Vegas, Heath Schneider. Uh, who tries to, as continually, at this moment, continues to try uh, to further his grandmother's legacy, her recipe that she made this incredible rye, in, in whiskey, vodka, rye. Uh, she made this incredible rye uh, during Prohibition in a small town. And she did it because Germans were being targeted by the KKK during Prohibition because they drank. Uh, but anyway, you'll see. You'll hear all of this. It's so interesting. And Grandma Sextro, you will love. I know you're going to love Lorene Sextro. She is an innovator back in the 30s. She was a feisty woman. She was a, a woman who wouldn't take no for an answer. She wouldn't let her kids starve, even if she had to do something deemed illegal. You know, you're going to find out about her battle uh, back during Prohibition, and then her grandson's battle today with a huge corporation that's trying to steal that whole story from that area. So there's this big controversy, uh, and you're going to hear about it right here, and I'm so glad. That's coming up. Uh, but right now, uh, the breaking news just broke about an hour ago. Uh, what was that? News. It broke. Uh, Merrick Garland has stepped aside, basically, uh, from the Trump criminal probes, uh, plural, <laughs> they use the plural, and he has appointed a former war crime hunter from The Hague, who was also head of the Department of Justice's um, Integrity Division. Now, Merrick Garland created the Office of Special, Special Prosecutor because that is called for when, A, there is a conflict of interest in the case. There is not, but that's the first reason. Uh, and B, the second reason is when there are extraordinary circumstances. And the extraordinary circumstances that Merrick Garland quoted were that Donald Trump was planning to run for president of the United States, he had announced, and that uh, Joe Biden had made it clear that, you know, he was probably going to announce that he was going to seek re-election, and therefore Merrick Garland thought it was better that someone outside of the administration steps in uh, and oversees the ongoing investigations. They're not stopping and restarting. 
but oversees the ongoing investigations. Now, what that means is this. This is there's a couple of things I have to say, and here's the bottom line. That's why you listen to me. Here's the bottom line on these things. First of all, Merrick Garland, what the f? Okay. I like what you're doing here, but what the F? Why didn't you do this six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago? January 6th was two years, almost three years ago now. The crimes were committed in public. Mar-a-Lago was, what, months ago now that the documents were found. This is ridiculous. This is just effing ridiculous. So while I'm happy that this indicates there's going to be prosecutions, because that's what this indicates, you don't bring in a heavy hitter prosecutor from the Hague, meaning that Trump might be guilty of some war crimes. We don't know. But you don't bring in a, a special prosecutor from the Hague, okay, if you think the investigations are winding down to a conclusion of no indictments and no prosecutions. You don't do that. You don't bring in a giant star to a losing team that's about to fold. You don't do that. So there's going to be prosecutions. That's what you should be taking from this. Merrick Garland feels that there is enough to prosecute Donald Trump. Therefore, he's bringing in this special prosecutor to close the deal so he can have, he can testify under oath in front of this new Congress that's coming, you know, because they're going to be looking, and that's the other thing we got to talk about today. So the first thing is, this special prosecutor is Merrick Garland's way of trying to remain impartial, whatever. The fact is Merrick Garland should have hauled Donald Trump away in bra bracelets, uh, you know, handcuffs, two years ago, okay? Donald Trump should have been arrested on January 7th, okay? Not January, not after he left, not after the transition of power. January 7th, his losing ass should have been hauled out of the White House in Handcuffs. And once Merrick Garland was appointed and in office, the first thing he should have done was indict Donald Trump. If there's not enough evidence there, then you just ain't looking. Or you don't want to look. You don't want to see it. And if he's not prosecuted, it's not because he's not guilty. It's because somebody somewhere doesn't want him to be. Okay? So that's what you need to know about this. That Merrick Garland really believes there's probably going to be something, which is why he, he's bringing in this guy from The Hague. But you also need to know all this could have been done a year ago. The special prosecutor could have been appointed a year ago. The, nine, the, the January 6th committee, they could have finished their work in half the time. This man is guilty as sin. And I know I said I wasn't going to talk about him, but I said unless something big breaks. And the fact that a very big special prosecutor is being brought in for the, quote, criminal probes, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Donald Trump when it relates to him being hauled away to jail and his children. Congress, I got a message for the new Republican Congress. If you come for Hunter Biden, then Donald Trump's children will be fair game. Period. You will make it the new norm. So I've always thought we should drag those ratty-ass children off to jail as well. They're all criminals and thieves. All of them. Jared Kushner, Ivanka, all of them. Little criminal cabal of evilness. They all should be in the hooskow. All of them. Every one of them. So yeah, investigate. Indict. Get rid of these miscreants before they rise to frickin' power. And that includes the offspring. You want to go after Hunter Biden. You know what I say about that? Good. Y'all are like, what? Look, I don't think Congress should go after any private citizen. Okay? I do not. Zero. Okay? No private citizen should be a target of Congress out of political retribution. Hunter Biden ain't elected to anything. And he's a former drug addict. So it's going to be easy to find crimes that he committed. Why? He's a former drug addict. Drug addicts commit crimes. Lots. This ain't going to be hard. And I'm sure he did some things under the influence of drugs that might have been not good. How do I know? I did some horrible things under the influence of drugs that mm, not good. <laughs> Oh, my shoulders are tight today. Sorry about that. Moving my shoulders again. I moved them the other day. They were, they've been tight the last couple of days. I'm like trying to move them around. Like, oh, 
So, yeah, not good. Not good. So if Hunter Biden did things that were criminal, okay? Now, I'm just going on the esoteric here, not about Congress going after him. But if he did things that were criminal and they involved the government or they involved, you know, espionage, whatever. If he did criminal things, then of course he should be punished. Of course he should be investigated, as should anyone, okay? And there's the caveat. And here's what this Congress, this new Congress doesn't get as they announced they're going after Hunter Biden. Jared Kushner got $20 billion from the Saudis for what? There were documents missing that pertained to China and the Saudis. What was he selling the Saudis? You should be looking into that. Ivanka Trump. Donald made $985 million while he was in office. Find out how. Ivanka Trump more than quadrupled her fortune every year she was in the White House. How? You want to look into the children of presidents to see if there are financial or other wrongdoings? Okay, that's fine. Start with the former. But they won't. Because it's not about Hunter Biden or if Hunter Biden is some sort of criminal or if he and Joe cooked up some plot to, I don't know, overthrow Lithuania, something about the Ukraine. Now the Republicans are saying that the Ukraine is a big money laundering scandal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's they're, they're, what they're saying. They're saying, oh, yeah, laundering money. <sighs> so I bring that up. Because Democrats, I've, is a recurring theme here on my show, that Democrats will not do what they need to do. They're still in power until January. They should immediately open up investigations into Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, all of them. Huge investigations. They should encourage states and state legislators, like in New York, to start criminal proceedings against them for fraud, for all kinds of things. They should dissect their financials like they're going to do to Hunter Biden. But they won't. And what makes me laugh is, the sad part is that now for two years, climate change, not an issue. And it doesn't have two years to wait. Your money when you go to the grocery store and how it's just skyrocketing out of control, not on their agenda. I didn't hear anything about that. They maybe will talk gas prices because they're Republicans, but they're not going to talk about groceries. They're not going to talk about the real things, public transportation. They're not going to talk about anything. They're going to talk about Hunter Biden. They're going to talk about conspiracies and QAnon. They're going to have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene having a louder voice. They're going to be sickening and deafening. And what's really the sad part is they're not going to get anything done. And so everything that's bleeding to death right now, from the economy to the climate to civil rights to everything, everything that needs the utmost attention ain't going to get it. No, you're never going to get it. Not this time. Never, never going to get it. The U.S. is over here singing, we need attention. We need some love. We need some economic help. Republicans are all, well, you're never going to get it. Never, never going to get it. Oh, Lord. Well, that's what's happening in the world. Other than, you know, terrible stabbing, students found stabbed to death and shootings at college campuses and, you know, the normal things of being Americans, Kardashians doing something ridiculous. You know, all the typical stuff. Taylor Swift crashing Ticketmaster because it's a monopoly and she has a lot of fans. And, you know, that was that. Uh, so, that you know, these aren't, huge issues they're fun issues but they're not you know and that's like hunter biden i can only you know how can an electorate people that put these people in office is that really what they care about i mean in their lives are they sitting around their dinner tables going well that hunter biden i mean are they really because wow if they're that stupid then <laughs> why don't they all just Follow each other off a cliff and do us all a favor. I mean, are they that dumb? The world is burning around them and they're going to say, Hunter Biden. 
<laughs> what? What? Was was your daughter one of the hookers? I mean, what? What? You know, what? I, will someone explain their fascination with Hunter Biden? He was once cute. But I, I mean, really? What else? What? 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 I don't get it. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. Why? Why are we going to hear this name for a year? Why? 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 <laughs> why? Oh, Lord. Because. Because they don't want to do anything. They don't want to progress our nation. They just want to be in power and be rich. They don't want to help us. They don't want to help you. They don't want to help me. They don't want to help anybody except themselves. The Lord helps those who helps themselves. So they helping themselves to your money, to your time, to your planet, all of it. They taking it. It's theirs. You can't have it. It ain't your life. It's their life. They'll do with your life what they please. If they think you got two years to wait to deal with the the crisis of the economics of your home, your car payments, your light bills, your gas bills, your water bills, your, your grocery bills. If they think the West has got two more years to wait for some solution on water, if they think that, you know, that the climate's got two more years to wait before we get aggressive about doing something about it, if they think that we got all this time to wait, it's because they're freaking old and going to die soon. Because no one in their right frame of mind, under the age of whatever, I don't care, 60, 50, 40, thinks we got a minute to wait. But they think they go, oh, they got all the time. Oh, what we, we ain't got nothing but time. We can dick around for two years and talk about Hunter Biden and talk about all these QAnon conspiracies because it's not like we got anything else going on that's pressing. What the hell? These people, you know, we can't survive with them. And I keep bringing that up, but we cannot, we just can't keep going with these people. We need to make our own country that doesn't have a majority or even 50% of the voting populace being these people. We just can't. We cannot, I mean, they can't cripple an entire, they're going to cripple these people from little freaking states like Indiana and Ohio or Oklahoma, Montana, South Dakota, where they got one person and 50 sheep per square mile. They get to determine the agenda of the United States for the next two years. People from states with less people than I perform for are going to you know, make rules. It's time to break this crap up. I'm tired of being tied to these people. These people are a mess. And it is time to just walk away from them. So y'all just argue and fuss and fight about your own damn crap in your own damn country. We're going to form an alliance and we're leaving. Because we believe in saving the planet. We believe in equality, a woman's right to choose. We believe in all these things. We believe where people should not have to spend 50% of their income on their grocery bill and the other 50% on their car payment so they can't pay no rent. We believe in a country. We want to believe in a country again. You know, I envy... I was at this, uh, we got to talk about, oh, should we talk about last night before we go to the story in every bottle? Because, you know, fanatics of any kind are bad. And last night I went to a Golden Knights game here in Las Vegas, a hockey game at the T-Mobile Arena here. I cannot tell you what an unpleasant experience 50% of that was. I mean, from the $30 to park, which, what? Like, What? You're parking in the Aria Hotel's parking lot. It's already there. Why do they need $30? But whatever. $30 to park. Then I had a small bag with me that they would not let inside the arena, even if they searched it. So they directed me to some lockers, and the smallest locker was, say it with me, $22 to rent the locker. Our car was so far away that at that point it was throw away the $60 bag or pay $22 
to put it in the thing. So I put it in the thing. So then we go through where it says T-Mobile customers, because I am. Uh, and we're like, you know, wait a minute. The, the, the boss is, you know, paid for a suite. So, you know, don't we have a separate entrance? They're like, no. You go through this general admission here. And then you have to go through here and go up there and get in this elevator. Oh, it was a mess. It, and there were crowds of people with not one of them in a mess. Not one. Not one. I was looking for mask. And there was nobody in a mask. So we get to the suite finally. The suite's nice, but their vegan options are carrots, <laughs> zucchini, cucumbers, and hummus. Everyone else, they got fried chicken wings. They got the meatballs. They got all this stuff. But I, I get the slice. I get the slice corgettes uh, and the little uh, damn little chingaderas, little uh, carrots. They were good carrots. So, and then we're watching the hockey, and I'm like, well, and, and uh, look, Canada, I don't want to piss you off. I know that I've been charting up in Canada, and I don't want to piss you off. But what's with the hockey? What's with the hockey? First of all, you got 12 men out there, and neither of them can force an entry into either end. That's just not good. 12 men who can't enter either end is not good. Then, then... They get in a fight, and we're all rooting. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's even up on the billboard. We're all rooting for this fight. We're like, yes, yes, hallelujah. And after the fight, the guy in the fight gets in trouble. That ain't right. I don't get any of it. We were accessories. We should have all gotten in trouble. We were cheering them on. All right. All right, I'm going to go now, and I'm going to let you hear this story in every bottle. I want you to hear it. It's a great story. It's a great show. You're going to learn so much. You're going to be in shock about how much you learn. Uh, so, you know, watch it. Enjoy it. Come back. Next week, most shows will be about cooking. It's Thanksgiving week. So if you don't like that, then next week, sit the shows out. I'll talk issues, but while cooking, because it's Thanksgiving week. Uh, so that's going to happen. I am Carell. You'll be who you want to be, so I don't hurt anybody. Stay tuned right now for A Story in Every Bottle. You can watch it all at astoryineverybottle.com. Okay, astoryineverybottle.com. Go watch, enjoy, and hear it right now. You're going to love this story. You are. So listen, listen, listen. Templeton Rye is a, a story from a corporation that's profiting off of a history that doesn't belong to them. Everybody has a right to their history. Everybody has a right to their story. I just like someone not to use my story because, you know, how do I tell my story if you've told my story and it's not true? I'm Heath Schneider. I'm the grandson of Lorene Sextro, the famous bootlegger from Templeton, Iowa. For nearly 10,000 years, humans have enjoyed fermenting things into alcohol. Be it beer or moonshine, alcohol is a part of almost every culture. But behind every label, savored in every sip, is a story. Today's alcohol represents generations of distillers, guarded recipes, and so much more than the label may tell. Long before you pop a cork or twist a cap, another story played out. No matter what you drink, there's a story in every bottle. Hi, it's Carell, and welcome to A Story in Every Bottle. Today, we are in my hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada. Today, we're going to tell you the story of a bootlegging granny from Iowa, honey, whose history was being appropriated until a feisty grandson from Las Vegas decided to step in and reclaim it. Now, it's a story of survival, it's a story of hope, uh, it's a story of Davy versus Goliath, there's a lot of controversy thrown in, and mostly it's a story of family, Lorene Sextro's family, all around a recipe for a whiskey that Al Capone once called his favorite. It's a story that's not uniquely American when a woman's history is in danger of being appropriated, but that's okay, we found that story right here inside this bottle, because guess what? Like everything you drink, Oh, there's a story in every bottle, and it's a good one. You know, I went back to uh, Carroll County, Iowa, heard a story about a guy making my grandmother's recipe. He was speaking of her on his website, 
and he had her name spelled wrong. So <laughs> I brought it upon myself to go in and explain to him that he had the name spelled wrong and um, wanted to see what my grandma's alleged recipe was like. He was about to find out about his grandmother, Lorene Sextro's very colorful past as a bootlegger, one of Iowa's premier, by the way. She never got caught. And the more he found out, the more he saw that his trailblazing bootleg and granny had a story being taken by a huge corporate giant and or being erased. He made it his mission to tell the story of Lorene Sextro and her legendary Iowa ride. Scheid was born in Halber, Iowa. Her parents were Ted and Anna. She was uh, born in 1911. You know, there was a couple of wars in there. And although they were children of immigrants, the Germans weren't especially liked during the 30s because we were in battle with the Germans and some would, were taking uh, that opportunity to describe the uh, making of liquor as being for the Hun because you're using grains that could be fed to soldiers. So it was somewhat of a propaganda method for vilifying German immigrants. You know, it was the Prohibition era that provided the demand for Lorene Sextro's product. And uh, as you can see, Prohibition is still alive and well inside our culture, especially here in the underground at the Mob Museum. But what most of us know is the what of prohibition. Okay, we don't know the why. We know that you couldn't drink, you couldn't buy alcohol, but we don't know why you couldn't. And once we find that out, it proves everything old, unfortunately, is new again because tropes like immigration, war, racism, radicalism, even the KKK, the anti-saloon squad, they all brought us this dry period in American history. But Lorene Sextro and others took advantage of that to make some money, not so much because they love whiskey, but because they needed money. But she just happened to make some that Al Capone once called his favorite. So to understand the times and to understand how this happens, you have to understand prohibition, which means we need a smart person. And we got one. She's the director of education here at the Mob Museum. Her name is Claire White, and she stopped by to fill us in on the 411 on prohibition. Prohibition was over a hundred years in the making and when people first started pushing for prohibition or, or temperance, which is what the movement was initially called, it was really all about making the United States healthier, wealthier and safer. And what really pushes the Prohibition Amendment forward is a mixture of xenophobia and believe it or not, World War I. So during World War I, there's a couple of things at play. First of all, we start pushing to uh, use grain products for food rather than making liquor. And one of the major producers are German Americans. They own almost all of the breweries. And there's also a number of other immigrant groups that are making a lot of money off of liquor. Irish Americans making whiskey and rye and bourbon. Um, a lot of Jewish Americans actually own wineries in the United States at the time. And all of that really does lead to this, this uh, heightened concern over who is making money off of alcohol, who's drinking alcohol, and what that means for the fabric of the United States. The KKK definitely supported prohibition, and they were definitely active in the prohibition movement in the early 1900s. So they're very anti-Catholic, very anti-immigrant at that point, and a lot of the biggest proponents of prohibition do come from that very traditional Protestant faith, uh, as opposed to a number of Catholics in the United States at the time who are a little more sympathetic to uh, the drinker's cause. Most states that uh, had statewide prohibitions before the federal law had the exact same reasons, uh, but usually it had to do with their demographics. So a lot of the time, uh, you're looking at states where there are specifically large uh, German-American populations, and they are specifically targeting German-Americans and, and trying to uh, make it harder for them to operate their businesses. Iowa is a, is a good example of early prohibition. 
And in 1915, they decide to overturn the local option and essentially the whole state becomes dry. Uh, it's set to go into effect January 1916. And that's really kind of the beginning of modern prohibition. You know, the 18th Amendment was passed and everything was supposed to be dry. The, the Catholics in Templeton and Carroll didn't believe in that. You know, prohibition, one of the major goals was to make the United States safer. Uh, safer, healthier, wealthier, and bootlegging really created an environment where the exact opposite is happening. Lorraine and Frank Sextro had to become bootleggers out of necessity. You working, when you're working on a farm and you can't sell eggs, cattle, pigs, you pretty much have the option of selling what people are buying in it. During the Depression, especially in the 30s, people were buying liquor. I also uh, felt that they thought people should have the right to drink if they want to. These were proud Germans making a recipe they, were, they thought was as good as any recipe out there. I do think Grandma Sextro thought her activities were an act of protest and, um, you know, peaceful protest. There's a major rise in violent crime, all because of bootleggers. And bootlegging is, is kind of the, the linchpin of why prohibition is the best thing that ever happened to organized crime. And in fact, organized crime to this day, the, the money that they have in their holdings goes all the way back to prohibition. Oh, it was a really tough time when she chose to do it because we were in the heart of the depression. And worse yet, uh, the Germans had just lost the war to the Allies, so, you know, Germans weren't especially liked in Carroll County. So they huddled together in a town of Templeton, kind of ran the town the way they saw fit. And one of the things they saw fit, regardless of what the feds said, was that making liquor was acceptable. Do I feed my children or versus do I make whiskey? I don't think it was a gangster thing so much as a this is what I need to do to feed my kids thing, which is even more admirable in my mind because, you know, I know my grandmother was a very religious person. I know she was uh, very committed to her ideas and her values. So for her to choose to make whiskey in 1932 during the Depression had to be hard times. Thank the Great Depression for the end of Prohibition. And in fact, uh, the, the Depression sort of creates this perfect storm of why we need alcohol again. There's a lot of people who are feeling down on their luck, feeling like they need a little boost, and there is definitely a, a job benefit. You know, it's really easy to say if we bring back liquor, we'll bring back brewers' jobs and distillers' jobs and, and jobs in bars, but you're also bringing back major uh, transportation industries. You're bringing back truckers. You're bringing back people who are making bottles and making uh, casks and making kegs. These are all jobs that we essentially lose during Prohibition. And not only do we lose them, but the people who sort of fill in those niches are not paying taxes because they're doing it illegally. And so all of these things sort of create a world in which we need liquor to come back in order to at least partially help us out of the Great Depression. Okay, so now we know two things. We know that racism and anti-immigrant sentiments aren't new, and how the demand for bootleg alcohol came to be. It was as much the politics of hate that made America dry out as a need for us to be healthier. So how did a mother and a wife and a grandmother get involved and end up being one of the few to never get caught? What was the secret to her recipe that made it so good that they clamored for it and why was it so popular that even today people would like to appropriate it for themselves? To understand that part, we have to understand who Lorene Sextro was, and that means we gotta talk about family, because that's who Lorene Sextro was. You know, the family worked hard. That was what everyone did during that time, and my grandmother, Lorene Ashide, was farmed out to other families to help as a midwife when other women would have children after eighth grade. 
Lorene's from a big family. She has 10 siblings. When you have 11 children, the first child doesn't necessarily know the 11th child as well as one would think. Lorene and Frank Sextro were married in 1931, and they lived uh, two miles east of Templeton, Iowa, on a farm that Frank, my grandfather's father, bought and shared with his three children. Lorraine had seven kids. My mom was in the middle, uh, kind of the second wave of children. So Grandpa and Grandma Sextro had no heating, had no electricity, had no plumbing, unless you consider a three-holer plumbing, and um, that was the life they led. They did have a still, and it was the one way they could make money, the one way they could, they could make a living during the Depression. Frank and Lorene always worked. You know, I think the liquor was more of a side hustle than it was their main hustle. Their main work was farming. Their main work was maintaining um, the farm. And I know later in their life they got into the restaurant business and the bar business, but at the time that they were making whiskey, they were a newlywed couple. My grandmother had Aunt Shirley in her, in her belly and she's walking lunch out to a bootlegger who's making 300 gallons a night on her farm so that they can get 75 cents a gallon. And that's just enough to, everybody gets Christmas boots and Christmas pants and Christmas socks. You know, it's, they weren't gangsters. And I, I'm pretty sure afterwards she uh, just went back to work. You know, when one could make a regular living or get a job or find a way to feed your kids, she went back to work. Lorene Sextro was a disruptor in the 1930s. She drove a car, women didn't drive cars. Uh, she took leadership roles in the church, um, in the Democratic Party. Um, she was involved in her community and she loved watching her 31 grandchildren, you know, uh, out playing sports. She'd attend all of our games and, or, you know, the best of her ability. So very active woman. Even in her 90s, my grandmother Lorene would drive her Galaxy 500 about 80 to 90 miles an hour down the back roads of Iowa going to bingo. And it's just the way she was, you know. She's, she's just full of piss and vinegar sometimes. Lorene always kept on trucking. You know, there's just she'd never let grass grow under her feet. She always needed something to do. I honestly think that's why she taught the Eggers family how to make whiskey is because she was proud of the fact that she made whiskey. She thought she made a really good whiskey. Most people told her it was unparalleled. Grandma Sextro's laid to rest in the Templeton Cemetery at the Sextro plot. There's quite a few Sextro's in the Templeton Cemetery and uh, she wouldn't have it any other way. I, I'd go to Templeton and visit her any chance I get. Grandma Sextro loved life. Uh, she really felt like you're, you made your own luck. She lived a life that she felt was well thought out and proper and always tried to do right by everybody. So this bottle right here, this little bottle, contains all that history and all of those stories, as well as some damn good whiskey <laughs> up in there. It also contains a good deal of controversy, because after he connected with the people that were going to revitalize his grandmother's legacy, he soon found out that there were others outside the family, cue the bad music here, uh, 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 that were quick to appropriate the Templeton and Grandma Sextro's story for themselves. So let's take a look first at the actual product. What's inside the bottle? What is this recipe? And how are they making it now versus how are they making it then? And then let's address that controversy. I'm very proud of Sextro Rye, Iowa Legendary Rye, and Sextro Vodka in that it follows my grandmother's recipe to a T. We've won 21 international spirits competitions with that recipe.
Grandma Sextra was a fantastic cook, a heck of a baker, and understood yeast as well as anybody has ever experimented with and you know spent a lifetime working with yeast. Her yeast experience was more with bread. She'd make 12 loaves of bread every Sunday and it would be made to last the entire week. But when you make bread, you know, 12 loaves at a time every Sunday for a very long period of time, you become very experienced with yeast. So she knew how to use yeast, and many don't know that making bread and making whiskey are quite similar. Templeton rye was made with four ingredients, and only four ingredients, and that is water, sugar, 100% rye, and yeast. And that is exactly the way that Templeton rye was made. It's exactly how it should be made if you're gonna claim that history. The town of Templeton, 400 people then, 400 people today use three boxcars of sugar regularly. Mind you, a town of 400 people because sugar was the main ingredient to make rye that made the town of Templeton famous. And Whiskey Rich told me that his family sought out my grandmother with her being one of the original gangsters, for lack of a better word, you know, knowing the original recipe. His family sought that from my grandmother because it was so good and it was so, such a legend in the area. And we talked about that a little bit, the uniqueness of her processes. Many of these processes, patent pending, um, that make a natural, non-enzyme, pure spirit that I believe to be unparalleled. Many use 40 and 50 and 60 gallon uh, barrels. And um, when Rich's family, you know, Whiskey Rich here, uh, his family interviewed my grandma in her 90s. They brought a recipe that they thought, thought was accurate to the whiskey being manufactured in Templeton, Iowa. And there's four or five, six recipes out there. And uh, my grandma took their recipe and just started putting lines, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And one of the things they had wrong that she was adamant about is they had a 40 gallon barrels but we will always be 15 gallon drum. And everything is era specific and it will always be era specific because we believe there's magic in that formula. So it was Grandma Lorene's uniquely homegrown yeast as well as sugar, locally grown rye and local water combined with a small batch brewing process that made her rye so unique. So unique in fact that others want to claim their heritage and the recipe. And while Heath and Whiskey Rich acknowledged that there were other recipes, one corporate giant decided to claim the name Templeton Rye and pretty much co-op the story of the hard-working farmer bootlegging to survive while making the good stuff, as it became known. And while Heath may be all for sharing the legacy of Templeton during Prohibition, he wasn't about to let a large corporate giant take Lorene and Templeton's story with a product that was nothing like the original. And it wasn't just Heath with an issue, as the brand Templeton Rye had to settle litigation about deceptive trade practices surrounding their story or lack of authenticity thereof. It's a feud that Capone himself would love, and one Heath continually fights. Templeton Rye paid a $5 million lawsuit for deceptive trade practice. It's because they were claiming the story I'm telling you today. Unfortunately, it's not their story. It's a great story. And I'm not saying that the family involved with telling the story isn't somewhat adjacent to the story, but the real recipe, the real story, the real deal is what we do. And history books prove that. Templeton Rye has stolen a piece of history from my family. I would estimate it at eight to 10 families that created a piece of American history in 1920 to 1932. My family is one of those families. I don't have a, a waking moment where I don't feel like it's unjust, it's not fair. And at the least, people should know that if they want to try Templeton Rye from 1932, that they are not trying it when they try the brand Templeton Rye. 
So the product, Templeton Rye, says it's just another story, another recipe from the era, and that they are a true Prohibition-style product. After the deceptive trade practice lawsuit, the company put out a video to explain their side and to remind people that they're telling their own story, a grandfather's story, and sharing a grandfather's recipe, much like Heath shares Grandma Sextro's with Sextro Rye and Iowa Legendary Rye. But after listening to the explanation, one could be left with more questions than answers. Are they or are they not sugar, rye, yeast, and water, the OG recipe from the area? Or are they appropriating someone else's recipe and story? Well, it depends on who you ask. Hi, I'm Keith Kirkhoff, and I'm here today to answer some questions that our customers may have surrounding the recent news stories about Templeton Rye. Templeton Rye is a family secret, and it also is a trade secret for us here at Templeton Rye today. My grandfather was involved in Templeton Rye during Prohibition. Uh, my grandfather had passed down the recipe to my dad, and consequently I ended up with it. And uh, so we had a bottle of my grandfather's whiskey, and technically to be a rye whiskey, you gotta be at least 51% rye, aged no less than two years in new oak barrels. Well, my grandfather's recipe wouldn't qualify because it was not 51% rye. So we took the whiskey and sent it down to a, a whiskey engineer in Louisville, Kentucky. He provided a formulation that we could add to that whiskey and it would made it very comparable to Alphonse Kirkhoff's whiskey. I'm as confused as anyone on that explanation, but I can tell you this with absolute fact. They buy a 95% rye product from MGP in Indiana. They openly admit this. Their distilling partner and then a flavoring partner, which is a chemical laboratory out of Kentucky that allegedly tries to make it taste like something that harkens back to the original recipe. I have a problem with all of that. It's 100% deceptive. And the fact is that the only person who can make a recipe like Templeton Rye in 1932 is gonna to have to use water, sugar, rye, and yeast. So he can't even tell his grandfather's story because he's latched onto another story that has nothing to do with what his grandfather did. The product you drink today as Templeton Rye is the same product that we used when we originally started the company. That is true. That's about the only truth that this entire video has shared. Mr. Kirkhoff just proved exactly what I've been stating from the beginning, and that this has nothing to do with the original story, the original recipe. And the reason he has to say it this way is because that's the only marketing they have. Without the story, they don't have a product to sell. So they're somehow trying to latch themselves onto the history and the story and the, and the, and, and the romance involved with a bootlegging farmer making liquor that became world famous. They're hitching their wagon to that. That's what sold this MGP product. So you can't unhitch your wagon from that advertisement because now you're just another whiskey that comes from MGP. My grandmother's recipe is the only recipe that's being made that's accurate to that time and place. The only surviving recipe. Just tell the truth and admit that Templeton Rye during Prohibition was made with water, sugar, rye, and yeast, and that in all honesty, other than telling the story, they have nothing to do with the story. That's what they should do. It's the right thing to do, and anybody who watches this video should recognize that, because here's the fact. If a person wants to try Templeton Rye from that time and place, it has nothing to do with the juice they're putting in that bottle. There is a product that does fulfill that need, and God knows they've sold millions of bottles telling that story, but I think their consumers, and I think the consumer in general, and Iowans in general, have a right to know the truth. And if they truly want to try that, that recipe from that time and that place, they should know that it is not Templeton Rock. Since the release of the Kirkhoff video and lawsuit settlements, Templeton Rye, the brand, in their own words, has moved on, particularly in their marketing. They have opened a distillery and museum in Templeton, Iowa, and according to a representative, while none of their current in-market product is distilled there, they say that will change in 2023 and beyond. 
The representative also said that their product is inspired by the prohibition flavors and recipes, but that their recipe is not, in fact, made the exact same way with the same ingredients and distilled the same way as Grandfather Kirchhoff's, that it's been updated with additives for flavor. So he's contention that what's inside the Templeton Rye bottle is not the original recipe made the original way would appear to be correct. With the difference now being that the company doesn't say that it is, it simply says it's inspired by it. It's, it's very personal. I mean, I'd ask anyone who watches this to ask themselves, how would you feel if your family was part was part of American history, you know, a, a very interesting part of American history, and somebody else is telling that story. The record is that I have a family that represents the only surviving recipe for that time and that place, and that particular liquid, that liquor product was famous in the region and was Al Capone's favorite whiskey. It was the whiskey he gave to his friends because it was the good stuff. your history back you know I took your history back I put you back in the history book the way you should have been in the first place the way all those other families should be and there are books written about these people but uh, the story being told today is complete baloney and I cannot as a good grandson allow baloney to take my family's history so I'm out here fighting for your history and I hope you're proud of your grandson Oh my God, Lorene Sextro, what a story. Really, what a story. I mean, that's a lot to take in all around some whiskey, right? Lorene Sextro's legacy is now safe in the hands of Heath Schneider, her grandson. Uh, and he's letting the world know that this simple but very unique way of making rye, nearly a hundred years later, is still the best way to do it. Now, no matter what you drink, I want you to do it responsibly. And remember, every time you open up a bottle, you're not just having a drink, you're reliving a story, a history, a legacy, a real story in every bottle. <laughs> <laughs>